everyone. Welcome to the CSPI podcast. I'm here with uh, Michael Schellenberger. Michael, how are you today? Good. Thanks for having me, Richard. Yeah, I'm glad to have you on. Uh, can you give yourself a little bit of an introduction for uh, for our audience? Sure. I am the best-selling author of Apocalypse Never and San Francisco, which is my newest book, both published by HarperCollins. And the first two books in a trilogy on why civilization is destroying itself. Oh, okay. I didn't know. I didn't know the trilogy. Uh, there was a, this was a trilogy. So, <laughs> what's the third one going to be on? I'm. Um, I, uh, I. I decided I'm not going to talk about it. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's that's that, that's fine. We'll. we'll all but be, I'm telling we'll, you the trilogy. I'm releasing the information about the trilogy, so there is a connection between them all. Okay. Yeah. So I I read your uh, I read your book uh, San Francisco. Well, what motivated Great. you to? Uh, uh, I haven't read uh, the Apoc- uh, Apocalypse Never. Um, is that the, 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 the you have? A, that's about nuclear power, right? Or is that just about the environmental movement in general? Yeah. The subtitle is "Why Environmental Alarmism Hurts Us All." Okay. And so why, uh, what, um, what motivated you to write the book about San Francisco? Well, a lot, I mean, if, to write a book like that, it's, there's a lot of different motivations, but certainly the most basic one is just, I'm upset at what's going on out here. And I'm upset by the impact on the people that are on the streets who are mostly addicts and suffering mental illness. And I'm upset at the ways in which it's dehumanizing to everybody. And I'm upset about the way that it destroys our cities. And I wanted to understand why this was happening and what we can do about it. Yeah. Are you from San Francisco? Or are you from the Bay Area? I grew up in a, 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 not a super small town anymore, a medium-sized town in Colorado called Greeley. And went to college at a little Quaker school in Indiana moved out to California after college in 1993. Okay. Yeah. So I've been, I mean, I've been to San Francisco maybe, you know, maybe two or three times just for conferences and um, it's, it's really shocking. I mean, I'm from, uh, I come from uh, suburbs of Chicago and there are parts of Chicago that are uh, pretty bad. They tend to be, they tend to be separated from, you know, the nice parts of the city. If you're going to go for a conference of Chicago, you know, in Chicago, you, right. you know, you're going to be in the downtown area. It's going to be mostly nice and you're not going to see anything, you know, that, that bad. Um, but San Francisco, I mean, you, you know, I was in the, I think the American political science association, the, the main political science academic association in the United States had their conference there. And, you know, you can go one, one, two blocks down and there's just rows and rows, you know, of, of homeless people camping in the street. I mean, people are yelling at you. I mean, there, there's, there's, uh, you know, there's fecal matter in the streets. It's really a shocking experience. I mean, so I don't blame you for wanting to know how this happened. Um, it was, that, that was your experience too, right? You had a, didn't you have a business out there? Yeah, I've, um, I've been doing basically, you know, uh, progressive political advocacy and journalism for, uh, almost 30 years out here now. Um, a lot of different activist causes over the years. I'm best known for my work on the environment, but in the nineties I worked on, uh, issues around liberalizing drug laws, particularly around needle exchange, which is giving people, giving heroin users or other injection drug users clean needles so they don't transmit HIV AIDS or other diseases. I advocated for marijuana decriminalization and and what we call broadly alternative sentencing, which is 
different, you know, alternatives to just putting people in prison for decades, which is um, all of which I still support in, in many ways. Um, but my understanding when I got out of it in the early 2000s was we were looking to do more of a treatment model where, you know, I thought it was acknowledged by everybody and it wasn't really, is that some amount, if you're going to treat addiction, you can't end any coercion that you're going to either get coercion through prison or, you know, through some other drug treatment, but it's the withdrawal of all, of all really enforcement of laws against people that whose addictions are clearly driving, you know, self-destructive and and other destruct and destructive behaviors in public and so at bottom it's just this withdrawing of the enforcement of laws including um ones that you know ones that address both superficial behaviors and also ones that address the underlying causes yeah so i mean what's i mean what's you know i, I didn't know much about i mean i knew about the problems in san francisco i didn't know much about you know there's this debate and you know if you if you told me you know if you told me to guess sort of what the lines are in the debate in san francisco like what are the what are the liberal activists want and what other people want i wouldn't have guessed that the debate is you know the way you portray it in the book uh so it's uh, you know basically the Homeless ac- activists in San Francisco, they're against building shelters because they think that homeless need homes. Is that right? They just don't want any shelters at all unless they, you know, they're, uh, the homeless are giving actual, you know, apartments the way, you know, uh, just like some middle class resident in the city might have. Yeah, you got it. That's a big part of it. I mean, New York, at least up until the pandemic, was able to house almost 99 percent of its home, so-called homeless population. Um, and I explain also in the book why the word homelessness is really a propaganda word and is designed to manipulate your brain in ways that are bad for everybody. But basically, you know, in I just one of the biggest discoveries of my research was that, yeah, it's the homeless advocates themselves who have demanded that the money go to these really ridiculously expensive apartment units that they can't possibly scale up. As well as before that, the single resident occupancy hotel rooms, which were never demolished and that in most cities were demolished, which is why, as you describe in Chicago, the downtowns are not, you know, slums, basically, but with open air drug scenes and open air drug markets. So, yeah, that was one of the most interesting things about it was that there's there's really at bottom is a defense of the right to sort of camp anywhere and be sick in public and really not to require treatment, which is just bizarre. It's not something that exists in other countries. It's justified. One of the major pieces of misinformation is that somehow that's the kind of thing that Portugal allows. It's not, um, it's not what Amsterdam allows or Zurich or any of the other big European cities or any other developed world cities and many underdeveloped ones as well protect their downtowns. Um, and provide treatment for people that are sick, which is what people that are addicted to those drugs are and whether or not they have an underlying mental illness. So, yeah, I mean, the indictment is pretty serious. It's of the homeless service providers themselves and the advocates who are really, you know, radical left advocates who basically just adopt a posture, you know, as being spokespersons for the for the homeless. But they're not because most of the people we call homeless are suffering from, you know, very severe levels of addiction to the world's most intoxicating, addicting, and destructive drugs, and often have untreated mental illness. 
And so they're not they're not helping anybody. In fact, they're hurting them. And so it's a serious it's a serious argument. And it's um, it's yeah, it's a terrible, terrible. It's actually worse than I thought when I got into it. (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, I read the book and it seems like, you know, you know, I wondered how did San Francisco become like this? And then I read what the people, the homeless advocates in the city believe and how powerful they are. And it just it just makes it makes perfect sense. I mean, so they are against they're against arresting the homeless, right? They're against building them shelters. <laughs> they're they're also against, you know, stopping them from camping in public. They also provide them needles, right? And so so you're right. I mean, the way you put it, they want to remove every form of coercion. And coercion could, you know, it could be even uh, you know, uh sink or swim, right? It's it's not like they leave them alone, right? Coercion. It's basically give them, you know, give them drugs or give them needles at least, let them, uh, let them, you know, buy and sell drugs and don't do much about it and don't require anything from them. I mean, it's like, it's not, it's not a mystery how this ends up, like how you become a Mecca for the homeless with this attitude. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's this, you know, word that academics love to use, you know, which is overdetermined where you kind of go, why is something happened? What's the cause of it? And you say it's overdetermined by which you mean there's so many different causes and they all could on their own explain it. And so when they're combined, I just, at the end of it, I was just kind of shrugged my shoulders and was like, yeah, I mean, it could be the fact that San Francisco offers much larger cash welfare benefits. It could be the fact that it offers free housing um, without requiring, you know, any sobriety or any kind of behavioral requirements. It could be that it doesn't disallow public camping, that there's activists in the city that that demand that the police don't enforce laws against basic things like public camping, public defecation, that the ACLU is so powerful in San Francisco. I mean, it sort of goes on and on. At one point, my wife was like, she just goes, so basically, you're just saying that San Francisco is because we're so liberal. And I was kind of like, yeah, basically, <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, my sister, you know, I'm, my whole family is liberal, right? Like we're all progressive. We'd all say progressive. I would have. I just decided that that's not a word I could use anymore, but certainly right. liberal and, you know, um, you know, in the ways in which, you know, like you would think liberals would be right um, on a whole bunch of things. But um, and my sister lives in Boston and works on this issue, actually works on as a service provider, though, on permanent support of housing. She and her husband is a doc. They don't, they come out here and they see what we do and they go, that's not progressive in Boston. You know, so there is something peculiar to the West Coast. Now, I do see it, you know, I think I do see it in Philly a lot. They've struggled with this neighborhood called Kensington. Um, In fact, the photo I used when I, when the first day of the publication of the book was a photo from that neighborhood where people are on fentanyl and clearly just, you know, looking like zombies, basically. which is not a word I love to use, but certainly that is what it looks like. And to sort of deny that it even looks like that would be to be dishonest about what's going on. Um, so, yeah, I'm sorry. I think I've digressed from your question. <laughs> no, it's 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 all you know. It's it's interesting. I, yeah, like you, I, I shake my head. It's over determined. But I mean, it's it's your your wife. It seems like is is right that. It, it's also, I mean, there is uh, the fundamental cause does seem to be the underlying ideology, which gives you, you know, these yes. all these different things. Um, and you, it's just taking go- it too far. I mean, it's also this idea. In some ways, this book is, you know, um, 
it's 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 like there's some big surprises and then there's also stuff where you kind of shake your head and you kind of go yeah i could see that just taking things too far you know like we should have compassion for people who often did suffer trauma and often were abused as kids and or maybe were orphans or maybe had were foster kids and maybe they were you know just bad things happen you know but that's not that doesn't mean that you let them live in a tent on the street, shoot meth and fentanyl if they say that that's what they want. Yeah, They might say that that's what they want, but that's the addiction or the mental illness talking. And as a society, you don't accept that. You wouldn't be like, well, you were molested as a girl and therefore I'm going to let you sit in this tent all day in the middle of like right in front of the, I mean, we have a, we have a basically open drug camp right in front of city hall. Like it's, it's like, gotten to the point of being like almost like a satire um it's so pathetic and and so yeah we've really um you know we've really allowed this kind of manifestation of kind of guilt and um radical left hatred of civilization kind of combine into real harm against vulnerable people out of some idea that we're helping them yeah, I, I found the part that was in one of the parts that was interesting in your book when you talk about um, Amsterdam and what they do. And when you say, you know, this is not liberal in Boston, hey, it doesn't seem liberal anywhere. So, it, I mean, did you find any historical or, or any other because you, you talk about Amsterdam in the in the book and, it, you know, it looks like they actually do re- have some kind of behavioral requirements, right? If the government's going to help oh, you, yeah. right, they require you to do X, Y and Z. Yeah. Is there any place in the world besides the West Coast of the United States that does anything close to what cities like San Francisco do? No, I mean, you can certainly find, um, I mean, you know, you find lack of enforcement of open drug scenes. And so, you know, one of the early discoveries that was exciting for me in this research, and that actually made me happy rather than (laughs) uh, depressed and cynical, was the discovery that the European cities had all had a phase that we're having now, where basically Uh the progressives, the left was in power, you know, it was in the eighties. And so the left was in power and, um, and they were radical and they were saying, you know, to victims, we only give and help. We don't ask for anything in return. It was the same exact same thing that progressives are saying now in progressive West coast cities. And, uh, the people themselves revolted against it, just as you might imagine, like people from the neighborhoods, uh, people who were negatively impacted from it, they demanded of their city councils, but also the federal government. In fact, it was the federal government, mostly in Portugal, that basically just broke, just ended what, what they would call what European researchers called open drug scenes. Well, we call open drug scenes, homeless encampments. It's a euphemism Mm-hmm. For what is effectively a place where people go to buy and sell and use drugs, usually really hard ones. You know, heroin um, is was really what it was in all the European cities. It's harder here now because we have meth and also now the heroin is, has evolved into fentanyl. And so people are dying, um, although that's in some ways bringing the attention, making the, the, this, the crisis more acute. Nonetheless, what was inspiring about discovering that paper is that there's five cities, Amsterdam, Frankfurt, Lisbon, Vienna, and Zurich, that all went through the same process of basically there being a political argument, the center right, you know, I think probably with center left, you know, because these were often multi-party systems, you know, the center right then, you know, basically a more centrist 
governance taking over and saying, no, we're not going to allow that and using police in addition to social workers. And, you know, everybody, one of the things that progressives did in grossly misrepresenting what those countries did was they will, they cherry picked a few elements of it and then exaggerated them and made them seem like the whole thing. So it is true that in Amsterdam, in Netherlands, there is a small group of heroin users who could not really get with the methadone, which is the synthetic opioid substitute. Now we have even better, we have Suboxone, but they couldn't quite get on methadone. They just really would keep breaking the law basically to use heroin. They were hardcore heroin users. They were a very small percentage of the whole, and they did allow a small number of them. I think it was 150 um, in Amsterdam or fewer, my source said. 150 or fewer people that they did that with. And it was only after, you know, really trying to help them quit or just use methadone. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's, um, you know, I mean, what's inspiring about it is I kind of go, well, that means that we should be able to achieve those reforms. Either that or we're just completely lost as a civilization. I mean, that's my basic argument is that, like, if you don't solve this, then you just don't deserve to exist. Like the Chinese might as well take over. That point. Yeah, so they because you're just letting the, you're letting your most vulnerable people die. It's crazy, right? Yeah, so you talk about I mean the Capitol Hill uh, aut- autonomous zone, Chaz, and then they called it a uh, chop. And we, did that ever happen in any European city? Did any city ever in your readings? Did any any city ever just you know no, surrender part of it? I've never heard of that. No, absolutely not. I mean, the probably the closest you could get. I mean, you maybe go Quebec, right? Where wasn't there like some like an, but that was like an Indian reservation. Um, there were building takeovers, of course, in the sixties, you know, at universities. Um, but no, I, it was, and you know, the experience I got, I'm very proud. I got the first, uh, interview with the police chief, the fem- the black female police chief, the first black female police chief of Seattle, Carmen Bass, where she told me the whole story. And she was like, she was, it was a really interesting interview because I don't think I'd ever interviewed somebody who was still so bewildered by what happened. And she would be like, she'd be like, I still don't understand that. Like basically somebody on this, you know, the radical left on the Seattle city council worked with the anarchist protesters who, who led the takeover, the armed takeover of this, I think it was four block, four or five block, uh, neighborhood. Um, and they convinced the police to abandon the precinct with the apparent consent of the mayor. It's that part still remains murky. And basically it happened and she was very upset. The police chief, as you can imagine, and wanted me to know that she did not authorize that. Um, so, and you know, how many, who exactly was involved in, but anyway, it was like, she then was like, I looked this up and this had never happened before. So there was no template. And she was like, I just found myself reading like, you know, obscure anarchist, um, you know, texts about this idea. But I mean, you know, it wasn't like anarchists had had much experience doing this either. So yeah, last year was quite a year, wasn't it, Richard? <laughs> yeah, we've had that was like it kind of go. What was that all about? That was crazy last year. Let's never do that again. Yeah, I mean, I hope, I hope so. So you know, it's it's uh, you know, I, yeah. So I mean, that that was something I've been thinking about. You know, through our conversation here and through reading your book. You know, whether it's possibly 
correcting. I mean, did you see the um, the Portland uh, mayoral election? I think it was it was last year where uh, Wheeler ran, and the person who ran against him, uh, her name is uh, Sarah Ian or Ian Nor- Nor- Naron or something. Uh, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't know uh, exactly how to how to pronounce her name, but she was running against Wheeler from the left, and I think she got oh, something sure. like. And she got something like forty percent of the vote. I mean, Wheeler barely right. squeaked it out. So that that's pretty that's a pretty pessimistic story about whether the political system is going to actually ever clean this stuff up on the West Coast. Well, yeah, I mean, it's interesting though because honestly, all the mayors were moderates. San Francisco mayor was a moderate. The um, I mean, really, the whole Democratic Party was still moderate in all these cities, including Seattle, Oakland, San Francisco, L.A. Um, and then, you know, the George Floyd, you know, killing happened. And there was just a, I remember thinking a lot last year, why is everything in such a hurry? Like, why are we, I remember even, I, by the way, um, do not capitalize white or black as racial terms in San Francisco. And it's like, as you might imagine, that's like an issue. And, you know, my publisher is great. They're supportive of it. But I disagree with the change. And, and, but even as much as my latest thought is, you know, I will, I may switch at some point, but I just was so annoyed by how quickly um, people felt the need to make that decision. And there was no like kind of conversation in the society, like, okay, um, should we all just change how we write white and black? Like the language it's just, I felt like the language is, you know, I mean, and obviously this has been a big theme here is that the language has been, you know, uh, corrupted um, to, you know, you know, as George Orwell's insight, but it had been really corrupted. And so, and I felt that way with a lot of things that there was just this kind of panic, you know, last year was a moral panic and by moral panic, like the quality of a panic, one of the qualities of, it, I think is that speed. And so, you know, you look at kind of basically after the George Floyd protest, these city councils, there's just a demand to defund the police. And like it became, you know, if not racist, then suspect to actually go, wait a second, can we just, you know, take a minute and think about whether that's a good idea to just defund the police? Um, yeah. And and I was so struck by it because I don't think I had ever seen anything quite where the where the entire society was kind of gripped in a panic and where the behaviors seemed like the demands. I mean, we see it now on climate, which is this other issue I work on. But certainly there's a sense in which deliberation is actually viewed as suspicious, that the idea that you would want to talk about this, that just shows that you don't care. Because like, if you really cared about George Floyd, you wouldn't want to talk about it, you know, Um and I hear the same thing on the climate stuff. So anyway, but I know it's, maybe that's a bit of a digression, but um, that's what your question inspired in me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, no, that's, that's all, I mean, it's all interesting and it's, it's, you know, it, it, this is interesting, not only as like, you know, a question about what's the best way to deal with homelessness or what's the best way to deal with crime. I mean, these are interesting, you know, sort of questions having to do with human psychology and, and political science and, and you know all these all these other topics because I'm I'm fascinated by it. I mean I'm fascinated by the fact that you know these are obviously we live in a democracy. Obviously these cities have democratically democratically elected uh, mayors, <clears throat> and you know when you say you know they're the mayors tend to be moderates. I mean that's 
that's frightening, right? It would be scarier if the mayors were just these radicals who happened to get, gain power. And all you have to do is um, all you have to do is vote for somebody else next time, right? But it appears that there are, you know, I think one of the one of the interesting things you say in the book is that the homeless um, advocate, the homeless advocacy community, has more power over these things than the politicians. Can you can you speak a little bit about that? Well, for sure. I mean, it became very clear that the big prey for San Francisco in terms of understanding why progressives run cities was clearly the ideas. You know, and and I think just and then I would say to uh, and then maybe the bigger prey than that was the sort of emotional and psychological need for those ideas. And broadly, this is where these two books are. My last two books are and they'll be part of the third is that I still feel like I'm dealing I'm looking at the political con- the, co- the political and sort of social consequences of the death of God, of what Nietzsche called the death of God and what sociologists call secularization, which is just declining belief in traditional religions. And I'm a very strong believer that in the substitution hypothesis, I guess it's called, someone told me that recently, I didn't even know what it was called, um, which is the view that as humans, we need to construct new faiths in the absence of of older uh, uh, traditional belief systems. So, you know, but but certainly, so you kind of go, well, that's the big factor. And that's not like you can't kind of secularization is something where you're like, those two guys did it, you know, <laughs> um, but then you would kind of go, well, who's really the big ideas? And so obviously, one of the biggest people in this book is Michel Foucault, the famous French historian who I believe is the most influential intellectual of the last, say, 50 years. Um supplanting Marx, bigger than Gramsci, um, foundational to all of the identity politics, but also foundational to this book and really homelessness, you know, drugs, mental illness, prisons and policing and crime. Um, And then there were these other folks, the housing, the architects of the housing first. Housing first is this idea that you should just give addicts housing without requiring sobriety or abstinence or any progress towards one's personal plan in the Netherlands. One of the really interesting things that I would see a lot was just, you know, offering your own apartment or your own private room, either in a shelter or somewhere else, but basically that's what people wanted for in exchange for improvements in behavior, whether it's sobriety, you know, recovery, you know, taking your psychiatric meds, if you're mentally ill, um, going to work, you know, and so as a, so, but housing first is this totally radical idea that somehow everybody, including Republicans under George W. Bush embraced, which is just that they should be given a ho- given their own housing and no questions asked. Um, so the architects of that policy, I think are really interesting intellectually. They were, many of them are in the radical psychiatry tradition they were actually focused on people suffering mental illness, not uh, addiction. And that makes some of the difference, although really both require the same kind of what we call, what what is called in the literature um, contingency, you know, which just means that your ability to get your own room or cash or a gift card or any kind of carrot is contingent on your behavior. Um, so it's actually the, the dominant 
the stuff where there's just like the best empirical evidence for working both in terms of psychiatric care and addiction is basically what we used to call behaviorism until it got a, until behaviorism, you know, got a kind of bad reputation because of its, you know, for a lot of different reasons, but just sort of the, you know, the, you know, rats in a maze, giving them different uh, rewards and punishments that that's still the stuff that shows up as working the best, you know, um, 12 step also works for a bunch of people, but it's a, it's a difficult space, but nonetheless, that's what the radical left has been attacking is this idea that there should be uh, this contingency management rather than just giving people whatever they want. And I argue that what's behind that is ideological and, and really spiritual in the sense that they're trying to turn people they've labeled victims into kind of spiritual figures of whom nothing should be asked and everything given. Yeah. That reminds me of one, I mean, one part of your book where uh, you talk about, there was a white attorney's office uh, in Berkeley and she was a, she was a, a female and she had, massive posters of black prison leaders on the wall. And then there was a staff of young white women and each of them had picked uh, one of those black, you know, prison leaders as their like sort of patron saint and put them on, on the wall. Can, can you talk about that? That's absolutely, that, that's absolutely crazy. That blew my mind. Well, yeah. And you know, it's funny. It's just strange. It's such a small world. Uh, that white female attorney to radical black prisoners was the mother of my ex-wife's, one of my ex-wife's best friends growing up. <laughs> wow. Um, and so, I mean, if you live in Berkeley, or <laughs> it's really not that many people, you know, there's like not that many. I was at a friend's house the other day and she was like, we went on our balcony and she's like, see that house up there? And I was like, yeah. She goes, that was Robert Oppenheimer's house. I was like, oh my God. You know, it's like the other yeah. issue, I, you know, the founder of nuclear weapons. So <laughs> <laughs> it's just a funny city, right? Um, so yeah, I mean, it's definitely, yeah, it's, it's, so there's a kind of at bottom, this is the really dumb part, right? Cause there's always like, how dumb is this, you know? And so definitely there's this dumb, bad idea that all black people are victims and we're all familiar with that. Right. Like, and it's just as dumb and bad as it sounds. Um, it's not just wrong in the sense that like not all black people are victims. It's also like bad in the sense that even for people that have had a really, really hard, horrible life, that's not great to be like, you're a victim, essentially a victim, you know, it's yeah. actually really terrible. Um, and that's not a controversial view, like psychologically or anything. Right. Um, so that's obviously horrible, and yet that is what is behind it. But there's this other part of it, because, of course, you go, well, if black people are victims, how come white progressives don't seem to give a darn about the black victims of homicides, not at the hands of police, but the 30 times more homicides that occur by other civilians, usually other African-Americans? Why do white right. progressives not seem to care about those victims? And the answer is... Because progressives, really the radical left, they only care about victims of the system because they have ideologically decided that the system is what creates victims and that without the system, there would be no victims because they have in mind a utopian alternative, even if they're not totally aware of it. They have in mind a utopian alternative where there are no victims, there is no inequality, there are no poor people, there's no mentally ill people, there's no drug addicted people. All of those things are a consequence of this system that they have in their minds. So, you know, it's really that bad and dumb. Um, 
And, you know, the, what I found at the same time is, you know, when you interview people kind of, and you get into like practical matters, they will concede a lot. Like, so I do quote a fair number of progressives and including people who I'm sure will hate this book or at least really disagree with it. A fair number of them saying, yeah, we should build enough shelters for homeless people. Like that's crazy, you know, or we should, yeah, we should require psychiatric care for people that are clearly, a, you know, a threat to themselves and others. So, you know, there's, it's just, a, it is what you said, you know, it's a deeply ideological reaction and, you know, over the last 20 years, progressives have grown in power. And so you've had the most ideological people come to power and just implement in a variety of ways in the ways of the overdetermined sense I was saying before, where there were so many laws. I mean, I got to the point where I was like, God, is it the laws or is it the values? Is it the judges? You know, is it the voters? Um, is it the media? It's all of it. Like it's everything, yeah. you know? And so you kind of go, God, it really, it's just, and you see it everywhere. Now, the good news is I do think, um, you know, like that people know there's a problem and there is, like you said, I think you're, you intimated before, I think we're in the midst of the beginning of, but what will grow in strength enormously, a backlash against all this bad woke racist victimology because people hate it. And it's completely inconsistent with um, the American creed. It's basically anathema to what Americans more than any other culture in the world really value, which is things like hard work and, and discipline and stoicism and equality under the law <laughs> rather than discriminate laws that are discriminating on the basis of identity or experience. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know how much of that old, I mean, American culture remains. I mean, the idea, you know, equality before the law, I mean, we've had a massive, you know, affirmative action state now for 60 years. It doesn't look like it's changing, you know, stoicism. I think we've, we've gone sort of to be more, emotional side of you know of the culture i think you know you, you have some words to say about the anti-psychiatry people who take it too far and say you know there's no mental illness and everyone should be on the streets but i do think there's been a sort of a uh i, I do think there's places where psych psychology and psychiatry have got a little bit too far so yeah i don't know how much of that of that old american culture is uh is actually left at this point that's yeah, I mean, I think the best, I mean, Joe Rogan asked me what he, what I thought the best argument against this book was, and that was it. You know, it's just that we're doomed. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, I um, the book opens and closes with that issue, actually. It opens with me saying to my wife, I don't know if this book can be anything more than a warning of non-progressive cities what not to do. You know, and she was like, you got to do better than that. You got to give us something. So I do propose, you know, basically the big ideas, you know, these things I've been mentioning, contingency, you know, shelter first, treatment first, housing earned, plus universal psychiatry that I do think is, if you look at it, you know, open-mindedly, I don't think anybody can look at that and be like, oh, that's right wing or left wing. It's just something that you need to do, you know, like they do in the Netherlands. Yeah. Um, and so part of me, yeah, I guess if I'm idealistic, it's for a pragmatic approach to this. But, but I mean, I end the book expressing my profound concerns for our country. I don't think that this is a small issue. I think that we're definitely in the worst way. You know, a friend of mine uh, who had a big influence on my thinking for both of these books, uh, Mike Lind, who co-founder of New America Foundation and 
also a very heterodoxical person, you know, he was like, <laughs> he's, a, he's a good historian too. He's always like, we're just in the seventies. Like, that's what this is. It's all just the 1970s again. And I mean, I see what he means, you know, it's not quite stagflation yet, but um, it is so similar, like foreign policy, the kind of the leadership, the leadership being totally lost. Um, and so, you know, you kind of go, America, I don't personally think America is done yet. Like, I just kind of go, that seems, I mean, partly because I'm a Gen Xer. So in, in the late 80s, there was this conversation about whether the U.S. the U.S. was over, you know, and and then we had a pretty darn good, I mean, you have a lot of, a lot of progress over the last 30 years in a lot of ways. So part of me just is, doesn't believe that this could possibly be the end of the American empire and that we're all going to split into two. And it, I don't believe it in part because, you know, people still want to live here. Um, yeah. It's still a spectacular place. I mean, I just spent the last five years traveling a lot, a lot, a lot, including to Asia, Europe, Africa, Latin America, and the United States still amazing. Like, you know, it's still, and it's still such an economic powerhouse. And so, you know, I, that's where I kind of go, we'll get it together. You know, it, 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 I don't know what it'll look like exactly, but it's hard for me to think that this is really like end times for us either. Yeah. I want to go back to when you talked about the ideas that have sort of taken over and especially in places like San Francisco, how do you, I mean, how do you think about, you know, cause there's another way to look at it, right? The, you know, it's like uh, the, idea you know the ideas are there and, and how do you think about the question of whether ideas have influence or it's just simply that this is sort of a money-making scheme right the the fact that you know one thing interesting that you bring up is that a lot of the social services are privatized right so it's it's there's there's huge profits to be made um and those people you know if they if, if their paycheck depends on it they'll seize on whatever ideas or whatever ideology they need to basically keep the resources flowing how, how do you think about differentiating between the idea aspect of it and sort of the uh the, the you know the, the business model of the whole thing yeah i mean so so look i mean there's there's i think it's fair to call a lot of these service i mean the i quote sort of the most academically respected expert on homelessness. This guy named Dennis Colhane from University of Pennsylvania, you know, basically saying the service providers do a terrible job, you know, and so it, what's not me, you know, I'm just like, I'm quoting, I'm quoting the guy that everybody says is like the top guy on this. And, and it's very liberal, you know, very progressive even. Um, and he's like, they do a terrible job, you know, and, and part of me, I, a part of me agrees. I know a lot of folks in that sector. My sister works in it. Um, I don't think my sister does a terrible job. I think they do a better job in Massachusetts. Um, so some of it is clearly, you know, um, you know, it's similar to the debate over single payer healthcare. You know, I kind of go at a certain point, you're like, I mean, one of the things I discovered is very interesting is that the Netherlands does not have socialized medicine. You know, and again, I hold up the Netherlands as kind of I would say the gold standard. I mean, maybe you would say some people might say Frankfurt does a better job or Zurich or something, or, I mean, certainly Portugal, it's slightly different, but it's, but still you kind of go, this is one of the best systems in the world for treating addiction and, and mental illness. And there, I mean, I visited the shelters and they are, they look luxurious compared to ours. Um, so, you know, um, I kind of go, um, you don't have to have, you know, socialized medicine. You don't have to have single payer, um, you know, so you may always have for-profit 
players in the space. And I think I'm fine with that as a pragmatic person. I think if you see evidence, and the Times has done these pieces, New York Times has done pieces in the last few weeks on a homeless housing provider who makes you know a lot of money and he hires his family is kind of crony. Yeah, I mean, you don't want that. But, you know, um, the Dutch government does a huge contract with Salvation Army. Salvation Army has 2,000 people. So it's not, it doesn't necessarily that it's the, that it's the, either the for-profit or the non-profit or the governmental structures that are the problem. The, the problem, in my view, is that you have this redundancy and gaps, what they call, you know, fragmentation, you know, what academics call fragmentation of the social safety net, where, you know, you can get out of rehab and have nowhere to go and end up on the street um, using drugs and maybe overdosing and dying because your tolerance has declined. You know, so it's that kind of stuff. You get out of prison, but where's your job? Like, where are you going? And America just does a terrible job on the in-between space, on the gray areas. We're very like, it's either prison or nothing. You know, yeah. and I'm like, God, we have ankle bracelets. Ankle bracelets are like genius. Like you could be a dad to your kids at home with an ankle bracelet and take care of your kids and or, you know, whatever. And you don't have to be in prison. But yet you're also like you're not going to you can't drive down to the open air drug market and buy heroin. That seems like a pretty good deal for everybody involved. Right. Um, so there's that stuff's all missing. Um I just think you need a hierarchy. You know, I just kind of go, that's how we get stuff done in general. I mean, the Dutch certainly have that. It's, you know, whereas here it's like, you know, it's like, well, we gave somebody a grant for that. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like, well, they have, we gave out a bunch of grants and it's like, well, wait a second, but what are you doing to drive down the number of addicts? Like, if you're like the, you go, well, why are these crimes occurring? Well, because they're addicts. Okay. So what are we doing to treat the addiction? Well, the answer is nothing. Yeah. They're just enabling and servicing it. So to even describe, it's like, so I, I realized pretty early on, even the question of, of the, the question of how much money we're spending, it's almost like it's the wrong, it's the wrong first question. It's a good question to ask, but you first have to understand that the system is not doing the things to drive down the costs because that would involve making people get rehab rather than just use drugs on the street. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I think in America, I mean, we get so distracted, I mean, by the big government versus small government debate. And, you know, there's something to that. But in my mind, it's been subsumed by, you know, a couple, there's a couple sort of more fundamental things, right? There's, you know, incentives. Do you, does policy take into account incentives right. or not, right? So you right. can have a big government that says, you know, get off the streets and get off drugs and we're going to help you. Or you could have a big government that just, you know, gives you needles and, you know, lets you, you know, go about your business, right? So I think that the big government versus small government thing, I think, has sort of distracted us from uh, just the lack of competence and sort of design and institutions that we have in this country. And yeah, you talk about the you know the central, the, the, yeah, I think that the fact that nobody in charge is is a real problem, right? Like theoretically, you'd want that to be you know the mayor. Um, practically, it doesn't seem to work like that. I mean, you have the mayor, you have the, you can, uh, you could, you know, you have the governor who you could blame or not blame for stuff. You have the president, even though he's probably less influential than what's happening in, you know, California, but you have this fragmented government at the local level, and then you have it fragmented, uh, between different, uh, levels of government, right? Um, 
And I think, you know, our system has done such a good job of sort of limiting power that it, it's sort of like everyone is in a box, but there's nobody sort of overseeing the whole thing. Like who is the most blameworthy or praiseworthy person for what's happening in uh, San Francisco? And there's just no clear answer to that, right? You have the uh, advocacy community, you have the ACLU, the ho- you know the homeless organizations, um, you have like the public sector unions, you have these interests that are always there. Right, and they and they're and they're full time influence in government, and you have these elected officials who just you know they go up there and then you know they say some a few words and then they're gone and nothing really changes. Right, there's something really really broken with the system here. Yeah, there is, and I think the system is broken, and so you need new institutions. I'm calling it Cal Psych, and it would be CEO reports to the governor. He's a, you know, she or he is a public, is a, is a public, like highly paid best in class, you know, CEO of this huge statewide, you know, institution, but it might sub do subcontracts, you know, with different non-profit service providers, but they would be, you know, contracts and it's not and the incentives, as you said, would be aligned around, you know, reducing addiction, not enabling addiction. Um, and it could contract out to, you know, how, you know, we call it residential care, you know, uh, we used to call it halfway houses, you know, and, but you know, everything shelters. Cause I think part of it is you don't have, you should not be treated often in the same place where you were arrested. If you're arrested in an open air drug scene, you should not get your rehab there. You should get your rehab somewhere pretty far away. So that's not a temptation for you. But I do think there's this other part of it, which is that there does need to be a change in the entire country and society around addiction and mental illness. And that the libertarianism in us, the overhang of the one flew over the cuckoo's nest, the ongoing stupidity of the Britney Spears conservancy case, just lack of clarity about what it is we're talking about, I think has has created a culture of the institutions, institutional culture, but also institutional structures where people don't understand, like, I mean, cause it's a, it's this, they don't understand that you need to require treatment. I mean, there's this, on the one hand, there's something very strong in the culture, which is interventions. And we even have a TV show about interventions, you know, and we, most of us have friends, you know, friends or family who have had substance abuse problems. You know, very few of us, don't know anybody, right, that hasn't had a problem. Um, you know, one of my best friends from high school right now has an active problem, you know, and it's hard. I actually have been feeling like I haven't been a very good friend in a lot of ways because I haven't known how to deal with it, but he clearly needs, and has even sort of admitted to it, that he needs some kind of oversight, some kind of probation, some kind of care that is kind of providing some of that enforcement and discipline that he needs, and I just think that um, I think that for a variety of reasons that I describe in the book, we don't have that, um, and there's sort of cultural and political reasons for it. But until but until we have it, I think we're going to have this confusion. It needs to because it needs to exist in multiple institutions and have the support of our of our political officials and and voters as well. Yeah, I mean it's strange because you know you say you know there's this sort of libertarian attitude but you think about it you talk about that person you knew who uh who um you know wanted sort of probation or wanted somebody you know right you you know in a, in a pure libertarian society you could sign a contract you know that says you know i'm going to you know sell myself off to slavery right or sell myself off to some kind of probation or just you know have have myself you know uh take commands from somebody else right 
And the courts in the U.S., you know, would not enforce such a contract, right? And so it's interesting, right? It's interesting where the government steps in, right? Because there are, you know, there are sort of things we don't let people do that, you know, would be consistent with a sort of a libertarian philosophy and maybe would help people. Uh, but we don't allow that stuff. And, you know, that I think that's, you know. Yeah, of- and some of it's like the the hardest is the people with things like schizophrenia. And I tell a story in the book where one of the main character heroes in the Netherlands describes kind of grabbing a guy who was schizophrenia by the lapels and being like, you got to go into the hospital. And I, I kept the story in cause it's kind of off the books, you know? And I kept the story in the book, even though my, my, my research assistants and colleagues raised some concerns about it. And I wanted to keep it in to kind of go, you know, that kind of thing is often justified as an alternative to what else might follow you know, including assault or the person doing something really harmful and then getting much worse medical care and it's spiraling into jail or prison or something much more, more um, denying of his civil liberties, you know? So there's some stuff in there that I want to point out that's messy. Um, You know, I mean, there is still struggles in the Netherlands where there's some police, there's some people that are just too soft and, you know, I think we could all imagine many situations in the United States where we have knuckle draggers who are a little bit too rough with people. But it seems like either way you kind of go, and this is why I'm so pro-police at this point. I mean, part of my optimism out of the book was just I became very pro-police, you know, because I go, if, you, if you're if you worried about obviously preventing crime, including the mother of all crimes, which is homicide, um, the evidence for police is really strong. It's not like... You know, it's not like there's a bunch of scholarly disagreement. You know, there's really good evidence that more police and yes, better policing, but better policing requires more policing, that that was something that we needed. And I kind of go the same way with a lot of stuff, which is just like, you know, um, if you want to have better outcomes, then you have to have these empowered public servants or people in some way or another serving the public and serving the people that are affected to be able to do their jobs, you know, and not, you know, um, so I just think, yeah, we've just been really black and white about how we approach this population in general. Yeah. I mean, I like how you, you know, you're, cause you're not, you know, you're not coming with just a simple conservative solution. It's, you know, you think centralization, right. Is necessary, uh, to, um, you know, to get something, to get something done. Um, yeah, this is, uh, so, I mean, when you talk to people in San Francisco, I mean, you, you talk to a lot of people, you know, there's a lot of data in this book and there's a lot of, you know, uh, there's a lot of, uh, uh, data, but there's a lot of interviews and anecdotes and, you know, stories of people you, you've got to know, um, you know, are there, I mean, is the, you know, what's your sense of, you know, where public opinion is, are they still, or do you think that people are still along the lines of, you know, we just haven't done enough to uh, help the homeless, or do you do you really feel that there's sort of a, a shift going on towards towards a healthier direction? Uh, right after this, I'm talking to the San Francisco grand jury and explaining why they're you know that basically people's liberties are being deprived. Um, I am an author. I'm also an activist, and so I've been advocating with parents of kids killed by fentanyl, parents with kids addicted to fentanyl on the street recovering addicts, community residents. We have a statewide coalition called the California Peace Coalition. And, you know, honestly, we're in the midst of a, of a big argument here um, over how to deal with 
the drug crisis. And I think that the legitimacy of the older of the ancien regime, in this case, the basically drug liberalization, harm reduction, housing first, it's obviously, you know, I'm, we're calling into question. So I think we're still in the, some of the early stages of both the backlash against the wokeism, but I, I view that backlash as also part of what San Francisco is about, you know, which is basically saying we have to, we have to get back to some basics here. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think in terms of even my own personal relationships with progressives, you know, the guys I play soccer with in Berkeley, the people I've known for a long time, I think they're absorbing this book right now. And I think they're, you know, I think it helps them to listen to me on Rogan and on podcasts and kind of explain what I'm describing, because I think it's easy in short, in short form, you know, sound bites to here's something that's not the case. You know, I'm still the same progressive in the, in the ways that I don't want mass incarceration. And I just happen to believe that we don't have to choose between mass incarceration and mass homelessness and that we can have, you know, we can have in many ways the progressive social safety net that progressives have long wanted, but it does require that we hold people accountable for their behaviors, including when they break the law. Yeah. Well, Michael, I mean, that's at least we're, we're ending, I think, on an optimistic, optimistic note. I mean, I wish you the best of luck. I hope, I hope San Francisco again becomes a livable, uh, city at some point. And, you know, good luck in your future writing and your future activism. It's been a pleasure having you on. Thanks, Richard. I enjoyed it.